Okay, uh, well please have your Bibles open and turn to Luke chapter 5 with me. Last week we were on holiday, nowhere exotic, we were in Droitwich. Does anybody know where Droitwich is? No? It's in the Midlands. My wife is from there, so we were staying in, our, in my in-law's house while they were on an exotic holiday. But we, stayed, we invited some friends to come with us. And one evening on that holiday, our friends started to evangelize us. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But not about the good news of Jesus. They started to share good news with us. News that they were really excited about. News that they were clearly passionate about. Uh, news that, they, that filled them with joy. They started to share with us the good news about the experience of going to see the musical Hamilton. Now, has anybody heard of the musical Hamilton? Oh, maybe a third. I'll explain to you what Hamilton is. It's very simple. Um, it is a musical that was very big hit in America, um, in, on Broadway, and now it is over in the West End. It's about a man called Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of America. And anyway, this couple who love music, they were really wanted to tell us how great it was. And they spent ages telling us how wonderful the music is, how intricate all the orchestration is, how the production was uh, mesmerizing, how the performance that they saw just blew them away. Uh, my friend who we were on holiday with is a trained classical singer. So he's seen a lot of different art and musicals and things in his lifetime. And he said this, it was the single most amazing piece of art I have ever seen or experienced. So then they proceeded to play us some songs. They um, showed us some clips on YouTube. And you know, by the end of that conversation, do you know what we wanted to do, myself and Lisa? What did we want to do? We wanted to go and see it, didn't we? We wanted to listen to it for ourselves. And we looked at ticket prices, and they were extortionate. It is sold out for months. But at that moment, we thought, it doesn't matter. Whatever the cost, we need to go and see this. Thankfully, the day after, we saw a bit more sense. But at that moment, filled with the excitement of our friends and how they spoke about it, we thought, whatever the cost, we're going to do it. It sounds so good, it's infectious. Now, when we think about sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, when we think about following Jesus, about saying no to self and yes to him, taking up our cross, thinking of the cost of following him, when we think about all that, why is it so often such a slog? Why is it so often that when we try and share the gospel outside of the week of Beach Mission, in our normal lives, why is it, doesn't it naturally flow? Why does sin seem more attractive to us? Why, does, uh, why sometimes are we maybe envious of unbelievers and the lives that they're leading? Well, there may be many answers, but one answer I wanted to focus on tonight is this. One of the reasons we struggle to share the gospel in our normal lives, one of the reasons why sin seems so attractive to us, one of the reasons why, um, why we struggle to say no to self and yes to Jesus is because we don't really believe that the good news of Jesus is that good. We don't really believe that Jesus is that great and he's not that worth talking about. He isn't that real to us in our lives. Yes, we might sing about him. Yes, we might um, talk about him uh, with Christian friends. But when it comes to talking to those who don't know Jesus, we find it hard work. Because we don't really think it's that great. He isn't that real to us. Jesus Christ isn't that real to us. See, if you experience something good outside of a kind of Christian experience, if you experience something good, if you watch a good film, if you read a good book, if you listen to a good album, if you, any of those things, naturally you will want to share it. You don't have to go to a seminar on how to tell somebody about your favourite film or your favourite box set. You just do it. 
You might not know all the ins and outs of it, but you will do it because it is so real to you. It is so good to you. Imagine the situation. Tomorrow morning, you look out of your chalet window and you see in the middle of the field is a big hot air balloon coming to land. And as you look, it is bright pink with turquoise spots. Okay? You see that. And then after you go and get red, you get your clothes on and then you walk out, it's gone. Now, what would be happening over the breakfast table, do you think? What will people be talking about? What will you want to talk about? Did you, did you see the balloon? Did you see it? What on earth was that about? What was going on? Because you saw it and you wanted to talk about it. You wouldn't say this, would you? Sorry, I hope you don't mind, um, but I think I saw a big hot air balloon and I know you probably haven't got much time to talk about it, and, uh, but I wonder if you could just give me a few moments so I could share with you about this thing that I saw. You wouldn't say it like that, would you? You saw it. It was real. You want to talk about it. If we want to be effective followers of Jesus... If we were to be willing to talk about him naturally with our friends and our family who don't know him, we need an encounter with him. We need to know he's real. We need to know that Jesus is great, that he is glorious, that he is worth talking about. Just like my friends were so enthralled and and amazed at that musical that they saw. We should be like that, shouldn't we? It shouldn't have to be hard work for us to think, I need to talk about Jesus. But because he's so real, because he's so wonderful, we want to be ready to speak to him. And I think the reason uh, there is sometimes a disconnect between our week on beach mission and then real life is because of this. Think back to our week on beach mission. Think back to your week. In one sense, and I, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but in one sense, sharing the gospel there is straightforward, isn't it? And I don't mean we don't have tricky conversations, but we know why we're there. We're in it together. There's a focus. And you want to share the gospel in that situation. You're chatting to people you will probably never see again. You're chatting to strangers. You're on a team. And and following Jesus that week is is, is kind of easy in one sense because everybody's in it together. Sin is less of an issue because you're focused on the mission. Following Jesus in that context makes sense. But then these last few weeks, since Beach Team, since your week away, it's harder, isn't it? Talking to your family about Jesus. Talking to people in school or in university or in work. It's hard to speak to people you know about Jesus. Temptation is real. It's hard to say no. So if we believed that Jesus was truly wonderful, if he was real to us, if we had this encounter with him regularly through his word then talking about him would be much more naturally, natural. Sin would be less attractive. Staying silent wouldn't be easy to do. See, when he's not real, when he's not great, sin becomes attractive. Talking about him becomes something we should do and don't feel like we can. Now, what's all this got to do with Peter? Well, we're looking this weekend at Peter's life, and uh, this evening we're looking at the call of Peter. So when Peter encountered Jesus. So if you see that in chapter 5 of Luke, um, at the beginning of this passage, Peter is a fisherman. He is there fishing. He's not very good at it, it seems, isn't it? But he is a fisherman, and he's had a bad night. But by the end of the passage, what do we see? In verse 11 and 10. From now on, Jesus tells him, you'll be catching men, you're on my team, we're going to go and tell people the great news, and so they left everything and followed him. So the question I want us to ask is this, what did Peter see 
in Jesus, in this section, in this account, what did he see that made Jesus worth giving up everything for? Made Jesus worth giving up everything for to talk about, to follow him? What did he see? I want us to see four things uh, this evening. There's probably many more, but four things for us to focus on. And as we look at this, please pray with me that we would see something more of Christ, that as we look at him in this passage, talking about him would become a natural thing. Not just know more about him, but to encounter him through his word, even in this time we've got together tonight. So the first thing that Peter sees in Jesus that makes, um, makes him glorious and worth giving up everything for, the first thing we need to see is he offers abundant life. He offers abundant life. Now Jesus is obviously very popular by this time. He's gaining popularity. And he needs a better platform to speak from because uh, the crowd can't see him. He needs to move back. But obviously behind him is the sea. So what do you do? Well, Jesus could have walked on water, I guess. But instead, he asked for a boat. So he got a boat and he stood on the boat and he spoke from there. Uh, the fishermen, they hadn't caught all night. Jesus tells them to cast into the deep. We'll look at that in a bit more detail later. But what happens? After they do this, verse 6, when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. So here it is, an amazing miracle that Jesus does. An amazing amount of fish. But what is Jesus showing us here? Well, one thing he's showing them is this. He's showing them what he's like. He's showing us what he is like. And he shows us something that we naturally struggle to believe. Jesus could have come and just said, follow me. He could have done that. But actually what he does is he shows them an amazing miracle. He doesn't just scrape together enough fish just to show them. You know, just filling one net would have been enough, wouldn't it? But he doesn't do that. He gets them a net full and more nets full. He breaks the nets, fills up two boatloads and the boats were sinking because there were so many fish. He gives them an abundance. And that's not the only thing, time that Jesus does that. Is that. Think of other miracles that he did. The feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't just like, oh, just have a bite of bread to tide you over to, till you get home, was it? Everybody had their fill. They were full. And there were 12 basketfuls left over. Just amazing. Here he is. Jesus is providing in abundance. Think of the wedding in Cana. Water into wine. Probably about 750 litres of wine. More than enough. Jesus is showing that he's not stingy. He doesn't just provide just, just enough. But he gives in abundance. I wonder, do you believe that Jesus is like that? Do you really believe that he is generous? He is not stingy, he is not miserly, he is not unkind. We can easily slip into thinking that God isn't good. Easily slip into thinking he is not kind and generous. Now we might say he is, but are we living that out? Imagine a child who in school likes to show off about his dad. And he tells everybody, my dad is really generous, he's really kind... He's really rich. He's not stingy at all. And so you look forward to going back to this child's house if you're in school with that child. And you go back to his house with him and you watch how he interacts with his father and you are shocked. Because he hardly talks to his father. He doesn't ask him for anything. In fact, he keeps his distance. And the relationship just seems, well, far. What are you thinking about that? You think, well, that boy says some things about his father but he doesn't believe them. He's not living it out. We might say, God, you are kind and good and generous. But are we living that out? 
Does your prayer life reflect reflect that, that God is generous? He is ready to give and help. Do you ask him for things? Really ask him. Do you ask him for great things? Is what you're attempting for God something that you could probably do in your own strength anyway? Or are you attempting great things for him because he is a great God? Are you attempting things that if God doesn't answer your prayers, you're going to fall flat on your face? See, God is generous. Uh, And when we look here at God the Son, Jesus Christ, he shows us what the Father is like. And he shows us, I am generous. I will give and give and give. Remember what Peter says in his second letter. Um, He says this, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us a very great and precious promise so that through them you might participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Everything we need to live a godly life is given to us. God is not stingy. He is not holding back. Do you believe that? Is that the God you have in mind? When you want to talk about God, remember this is what he's like. Think about creation. Think about what God has given us in this world. He shows us his generosity. He's given us beautiful mountains. Just driving here tonight, it's just wonderful, isn't it? It's like a sermon in itself. The heavens declare. Creation declares to us the greatness of God. What, what an amazing world he's made. Obviously, Wales is, is great, isn't it? But it's it just beautiful. And other countries are beautiful too. Um, sunsets, the sea, beaches, as we've enjoyed over the summer. Trees, autumn, snowflakes, the planets. He's given us friendship and laughter. He's given us uh, creativity, music, art, film, books. He's given us food, curries, roast dinners. He's given us Chinese, Thai, whatever you like, pizzas, fish and chips, steak. He could have made us with a nozzle to go into our side and just give us the nutrients we need. He could have done that, but he gave us taste. That's how generous our God is. That is how good he is. He's not stingy, stunningly generous to us. He's not boring. He is life-giving. Jesus doesn't hold back in this miracle. He just gives us a taste of, of the fact that he is so, so generous. And this is the one who calls you, follow me. Join my team. You know, th- this is the one who says, we're, all, we're with him. That should thrill us with joy. Not like, oh, right, I have to follow Jesus. But I get to follow Jesus. He wants you to know life in its fullness. Do you know this evening we are not missing out by following Jesus? Yes, there is a cost to be had, yes. But by following him, Jesus says, I want you to know life in its fullest. See, one of the lies the devil gives us is is one that was born in Eden, isn't it? Think of what he said to Adam and Eve. Did God really say, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? No, God said there was one tree. But Satan turns that into a negative, plants a seed of doubt about God's goodness. He says, God's holding back. God is not generous. He is not good. And we start start to think that we're missing out. We start to think that everybody out there in the world is having the fun and we get to follow Jesus. But you see what this shows us. One of the things that Peter sees is, wow, here is somebody who gives in abundance. Here is somebody who gives life in its fullest. I can follow him. Do not fall for the lie of Satan that says we're missing out. Pursue joy in Christ. 
life in abundance. That's the first thing that Peter sees. See, at the beginning, he's a fisherman. By the end, he's given it all up. And that's the first thing he sees. The second thing he sees is this. Um, he sees in Christ astounding knowledge and power. This is what, what we need to grasp as well. Astounding knowledge and power. Uh, so these fishermen were washing their nets, uh, fixing them. They'd had a frustrating night. They'd caught nothing. And Jesus, uh, as he said, he was standing in this boat. And after he's finished speaking, he turns to Peter. Look what he says in verse 4. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And so Peter does it. He said, look, we've caught nothing, but why not? Now put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. Here is somebody who's listening to a person they knew as a carpenter. And obviously a very able speaker. But here's Peter. He's a fisherman. He has probably been gr- grown up with fisher- fishermen. and um, It's in the family. He knows what he's doing. And yet Jesus turns to him and tells him what to do. Have you heard the phrase, don't teach a grandma to suck eggs? Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, few people? No, no. It's kind of the idea is, um, don't tell people who know what they do, what they do. I don't understand where it comes from. No idea if grandmas are really good at sucking eggs or what. I, I don't understand. But that's the phrase. And it might have felt a bit like that to Peter. Like, what do you know? You're a carpenter. I'm the fisherman. Let me do my job. But anyway, he listened. And when he took advice, when he humbled himself to listen to the knowledge of Jesus, then we see, wow, what an amazing thing that happened. I don't know if you're good at admitting when you don't know something. Are you? Are you one of the people who, when you get a new toy, I say toy, you know, grown-up toys, um, and you get the box, you throw away the instructions, you don't need them. I'll work it out. I don't, need, I don't need instructions. Or maybe when you get lost, you don't like to ask for help. Do you know that on average, we go an extra, we drive an extra 276 miles a year because we're not willing to ask for help, for directions? Over a lifetime, this has worked out at £2,000 worth in petrol. The price of petrol is going up at the moment. That, that's going to be higher, isn't it? But because, why? Why do we drive that much more? Because we're proud. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to listen to other people's advice. We think we've got it sorted. We don't want to admit we don't know things. And I know that's like in, in my life. I can think back to when I was 15. I'm sure there's some 15-year-olds here. I thought, I thought, I'm quite old now. You know, I'm, I'm 15. Uh, think of that. Wow, I just, I just thought I was, I was, I was old. <laughs> then I got to 18 and I looked at myself at 15 and thought, wow, I was young, you know? Dear me, I, what did I know then? But now I'm 18. Now, wow. And then I got to 21, I looked back at my 18-year-old self and thought, I, wasn't, I hadn't gone to university, I didn't know a thing. But now I'm 21. Now I've been through university, I hadn't quite, but I'm, get, I'm nearly there at the end of university, and this is it. You know, I, and now I'm in my mid-30s. I look back at 21-year-old and think, what did I know then? Now, and that's going to continue the rest of my life. I look back at myself in a few years and think, what did I know then? See, we always think we know a lot, but actually we know nothing. And I'm sure that's the same for a 90-year-old, looking back at the 85-year-old self. We just keep on, we just don't know much, and we think we do. When we compare ourselves to God's knowledge, when we think of what he knows, how can we dismiss him? How can we say, God, I'm going to do this on my own? Just think about creation. I think it's going to be a clear night tonight. So if you get a chance to go out, it's it's dark around here, so you're going to see loads of stars. Um, And on a clear night, you can see 3,000 stars, apparently. Um, 
But in our galaxy, in our Milky Way, there are around 200 billion stars. Um, numbers are hard to grasp like that, aren't they? So if you counted 200 billion, one, two, three, it would take you um, 6,400 years to count the stars in our galaxy. That's just our galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Probably about 200 billion galaxies. So again, it would take you 6,400 years just to count the galaxies. And then how many stars are there in each galaxy? Well, who knows? We don't know. But you see, there's loads, there's, there's billions upon billions of stars. And Psalm 147, verse 4, tells us that God determines the number of the stars and he gives to them their names. He knows them all. Sure, this weekend you'll be like, oh, I was on a team with them, I can't remember their name. Yeah, and you've only got like ten people to remember. God knows all the stars. And yet, God comes alongside us and says, will you trust your life to me? Will you let my wisdom and my knowledge help you? And we say, well, I've been working for over 40 years now, or, well, I've just done my GCSEs, or I've got A-levels now, you know, I've got, I've got a degree, I've got a PhD. We say to God sometimes, thanks, but I'm going to go with the latest trend. I'm going to go with what's popular. Even though, though you say that, I'm going to go with what I feel is right. See, when we realise that the Lord of the universe is this great, this knowledgeable, this powerful, we can willingly submit our lives to him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus here, whether he knew that the fish were where they were, knowledge, or whether he had the power to summon them when the nets were down, we don't know. But Jesus, we know, is one with great knowledge and great power. And what is more amazing is the one who had all this power willingly gave it up. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die, and die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For though you were straying like sheep, you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are like sheep wandering. And the greatest one of all humbled himself, died on a cross to rescue us. Why is Jesus worth speaking about? Why is he worth following and giving up everything for? Because he offers abundant life. He offers amazing knowledge and power. The third thing is this. What does Peter see? What do we need to see to really be sold out for Christ, to, to follow him? We need to see an uncomfortable truth. You see, Peter's reaction, he, see, he, he experiences this great miracle. But what does he do? How does he respond? Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Notice Peter has changed what he's called Jesus. In verse 5, do you see what he calls him? He calls him Master. But by verse 8, after the miracle, he calls him Lord. He is aware that he is before someone who has great power to summon the fish or great knowledge to know where they are. He knows he is before somebody who is God. Here is a man who knows everything about him. Here is a man who in a, in a look can see into the deepest parts of Peter's heart and life. Here is a man who knew everything about him and Peter was ashamed. He was undone. He, had, he, could just, he knew he was um, bare before him. He was stripped. And he says, I'm not worthy. Depart from me. I, I, I'm sinful. When we think of Jesus sometimes, we can be a bit buddy with him, can't we? 
We can think of him as, as a mate. Now, we have a great friend in Jesus. But when we see in the Bible people, people have encounters with him in his glory, think of how they respond. They fall flat on their face. I'm going to see that, I'm sure, on Sunday morning with the transfiguration when we look at that in Peter's life. Their reaction is to fall face down. Isaiah, in chapter 6, he fell flat on his face because he saw the glory of Jesus Christ, we're told. John tells us that in John 12 or 13. It's Jesus Christ he saw. He is glorious. He is holy. He is mighty. He is great. And Peter feels unworthy. See, to be able to give up everything, he needs to realise how much of a sinner he is. Do you realise how much of a sinner you are? Now he's like, oh yes, of course I do. I'm here because I filled in a form and I I put my testimony down. I, I know I'm a sinner. But we can forget how sinful we are. Here are some signs that you might have forgotten that you're a sinner. Are you more aware of other people's sin than your own? Are you harsher on other people's sin than you are on your own? Are you dealing with the speck in other people's eye without looking at the plank in yours? Are you looking at down on other people? Do you tut at other people's sin? See, if we do that, we've forgotten that actually our sin is greater than we realise. Of course we're forgiven. We're going to get to that in a moment. But until the day we die, we're going to be sinners. Struggling and battling with it. And we need to remember that. Because it keeps us humble. When's the last time you truly confessed your sin to Jesus? said, Jesus, I'm sorry. Because he sees everything. He's seen everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever said. Jesus has seen us at our worst. That if the person sitting next to you knew what you'd been up to, you would want to run away. Jesus has seen that. He's seen those things we're ashamed of. And we remember that, we are humbled. And we say, Jesus, I'm sorry. We've got to get to that point. Otherwise, we won't see how amazing the next point is. We've got to get to that point. Remember, C.S. Lewis does it so well, doesn't he, in Narnia? When uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking to the girls about Aslan. You say, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's Jesus Christ. He's the lion of Judah. Let's not be too chummy in that sense. Let's have a greater view of Jesus. Glory in him. If we forget the depth of our sin, we won't get how glorious this next moment is and this next point. So Peter, the start is a fisherman. By the end he gives it all up. What does he see? He sees abundant life being offered. He sees astounding knowledge and power. He sees an uncomfortable truth about himself. And the last thing is this. He sees amazing grace amazing grace what reaction would you expect from somebody who saw everything that you've done all the dark things all the things that you're ashamed of that you want nobody else to know about how do you think somebody would respond to you do you think they'd run away do you think they'd hang around look what jesus says in verse 10 Uh, he says do not be afraid from now on you will be catching men he's saying from now on peter don't be afraid you're on my team I want failures like you. I want people to acknowledge their sin. I need you on my team. That's surprising, isn't it? Isn't that surprising that Jesus does that? Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're a sinner. Oh, forget it then. 
No, he says, no, no, I need you. I'm going to use you. I I know all about you and I'm still going to use you. And with that admittance of failure, then Peter almost is qualified, isn't he, then, to be used by Jesus. And that's becoming a Christian, isn't it? When we become a Christian, we say, Jesus, I failed. I'm a sinner. And when we acknowledge that, it's then that he says, now you can enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the, the way into the kingdom of heaven is, is low. It's low down. You have to get low to get in. It's the upside down kingdom. It's not working our way up, but actually it's low down. And here we see Jesus says, Peter, I know you, and I'm going to use you. And this is liberating when we think of it. You see, we're very good, aren't we, at wearing a mask. Um, I don't mean literally, but figuratively you can wear a mask. So here it is. We have a smile on our face. We are always kind of doing okay. Yeah, we no struggles in the Christian life. We don't really struggle with any sin. We're doing all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. And we keep the mask going on social media. My life is going well. Now look at all the fun stuff I'm doing. This is me. And everybody likes the mask, we think. And we want people to like us. We want people to accept us. And so we put on this mask to, to be whoever we will want to be to get people. And so that might mean we have different masks for different situations we're in. And we want people to love us. We want people to accept us. There's a problem though, isn't there? Because people might like the mask, but behind the mask is the real us. It's not real acceptance. But Jesus Christ sees the real us. No masks, no pretense, no profile. He sees the real us, the darkness, and he still loves us. (laughs) He says, "I I want to forgive you for all that wrong. This is how Tim Keller puts it so helpfully in his book on marriage. He says, to be loved but not known, is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. See, when we're open with God, when when we admit who we really are, it is then that we know true acceptance. Then we know liberty. Then we see this amazing grace. How can we be that open with Christ? How can we be that open with him? Well, just one phrase I want us to think of as we close. You see what he says to Simon, Peter. Do not be afraid. Peter is terrified. He is terrified of what's going to happen because he knows who he has encountered here. Somebody who has seen everything about him. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now, should we be afraid of Christ? Should we be afraid of Jesus? When we remember what we've thought about in the the point before, there is a sense in which we should, you know. There's a sense in which he is just and he is holy. And remember, God must punish sin. And with this uncomfortable truth that we're sinners, we need to remember, wow, there is a sense in which we should fear if we don't know uh, the cross. We need to fear Jesus. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? Why can Jesus say that? Well, fast forward three years and we'll go to Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, we see Jesus wrestling with the cross and, and battling to go there for us. And he says this. Um, while, uh, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus is scared. Jesus is fearful. Now, Why? Because he's about to go to the cross. And what he's about to do on the cross is he's going to bear our sin. He's going to bear our shame. 
And he's going to have to face the holiness of his father bearing our sin. And that struck fear into him. See, that's what we deserve. We should face fear, but because of Jesus, we don't have to. Now, I'll just read, I just want to read a, a quote from Johnny Erickson in one of her books. She describes the cross, the scene, in a way that I think gets across something of the fear of, of, of Jesus might have had on the cross. And um, she spent some time talking about the physical, uh, harrowing physical things that Jesus would have gone through. But then she says this. But these pains are a mere warm-up uh, to his other and growing dread. Jesus begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odour began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You've cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You've cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, blasphemed. Oh, the duties you've shirked, the children you've abandoned. Who has ignored the poor? You've played the coward, you've belittled my name. You've had a razor tongue. What self-righteous pitiful? Does the list never end? I hate and I loathe these things. Can you not feel my wrath? The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops his ears. The son stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. Jesus could say to Peter, don't be afraid. I'm going to take your fear. That, that uh, horrendous shame that you feel, I will take with me to the cross. Tonight we don't need to feel shame. Jesus has taken it for us. We don't need to fear him because he has taken all of it. And remember, how many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross? Every single one. They're all covered. What amazing grace. We're forgiven. We're righteous. We need to keep the cross at the forefront of our mind. If we want to be amazed at Jesus, if we want to be ready to give it all up for him, then we need to be near the cross. It brings everything in, doesn't it? Think about the, where do we see the abundance, generosity of Jesus Christ at the cross. Not only does he forgive us, kind of just get us a kind of a clean slate, but he gives us his righteousness so that now we stand in the righteousness of Christ and the Father sees us as he sees his Son in perfection. What generosity. Where do we see his great knowledge, his power and his wisdom? We see it in the cross. Death didn't defeat him. Three days later he rose again. What power? We don't need to fear death. Where are we reminded of the uncomfortable truth of our sin that we need to keep in mind to keep us humble? At the cross. He had to go there because of our sin. Where do we see in glorious technicolor the amazing grace of our God? It's at the cross. He who knew no sin, became sin 
for us? How can we give up everything for Jesus? How can we freely speak for him? How can we be like my friends who are so passionate about that musical, but do it about something that really matters? We need to go get close to the cross. Get close to Jesus. No more of him. As John Stott said, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for the sparks to fall on us. Let's pray that this weekend would be a time where the sparks fall and we leave here, not with um, tactics or different tips on how to share the gospel, but with the heart that just says, I'm going to share it. With the heart that says, I'm going to follow Christ with my all. The tips help. They're great. But let's pray that God would really encounter, we'd really encounter him. Let me pray before I hand back. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your patience with us. Even though we may have read that passage many times, even though we may have thought these thoughts many times, we know we forget them very quickly. Help us, Lord, please, to give our all for Christ. Help us to see him as wonderfully precious. Help us to see him as as worthy of giving everything up for. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.